Well, good evening, everyone. You're most welcome. We've got an evening filled with delights lined up. There's going to be music, there's going to be books, and music, of course, being the universal language of humankind. First of all, let me introduce you to Louis de Bernier, who's been charming readers for decades with uh, novels, poetry, short stories and fiction for children, and he's won a clutch of prizes for that. Um, of course, he's most closely <laughs> associated. Imagine being heckled silently by the person you're here to interview. <laughs> There'd be no more of that. <laughs> uh, of course, he's most closely associated with Captain Corelli's Mandolin, a much-loved novel set on a Greek island during World War II. And as a nod to that, we have a wonderful local Dunleary musician, Sean Whelan. Uh, he's a producer, a composer, a ranger, and Sean will get us all in the mood for tonight's conversation with Pelagia's song, the theme tune from Corelli. That's nice. If it's for me, I'm busy. <laughs> this is actually a guitar I left in the back pocket of my jeans and put it in the dryer. I'd like to play that tune, actually.
This is called El Campanchero, meaning the party animal or... That was the next best thing to being in Athens with a strong Greek coffee or an ouzo at your elbow, wasn't it? Oh, that's great. That's great. You're a lot better than me. I think I'm not going to play later. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we'll be talking about Captain Corelli's mandolin later, but first I want to talk to Louis a bit about his latest book, Light Over Liscard. Um, it's about a quantum cryptographer who predicts computer screens going black, the lights going out, and anarchy erupting. So he retreats to rural Cornwall and reconnects with nature um, and adapts to circumstances. Uh, it's also a novel about hope and kindness. So Louis, tell us where the idea came from. Were you dwelling on Armageddon? Um, only to the extent that one always does. <laughs> um, I remember seeing a TV series in the 1970s called Survivors, which went through, I think, five series. And the first two or three were really brilliant. And they were about people surviving a plague. And that, that always preyed on my mind. I mean, not least because there was an actress in it called Lucy Fleming, who I really fancied. But um, uh, what, what brought this book about was that um, I was looking through some... Well, I was sorting out my father's stuff after he died, and I came across this photograph, which was my grandmother's. And it was for her school goalball team. And there's actually a copy of the photo in the back. Which team? What? Goalball. What's it, that? It looks like a weird kind of lacrosse with an enormous ball. And um, in the bottom left-hand corner, yeah, bottom left-hand corner, there's this absolutely gorgeous young girl called Mady Knox Lilliter and with her long hair bundled down one side of her head. And I, I fell very much in love with her, and I was just appalled by the thought that she's been dead for decades. It just seems so unfair, you know. Um, so that was one thing. I thought, I want to bring Mady back to life. And she's, she's actually in the book as an Edwardian ghost, who may also be a young woman, anyway, called Eva. Anyway, but the other thing was that I was reading an article in the week about quantum 
um, quantum computing. Now, ordinary computers work with switches going on, off, on, off. They're binary. But when you get down to the world of quantum mechanics, um, the switches can be so fast that they are simultaneously on and off. Now, I, d I know that doesn't make sense. It's like negative capability, but isn't it's it? It's called superposition. Okay. And the consequence of computers that can work that fast is that a code that would take, say, five or ten years to crack on, a, on an ordinary digital computer could be done within minutes on a quantum computer. And I, th I, was, I, this, I suddenly realized with appalling clarity that this basically means the end of civilization because all of our codes, I mean, all of, all of our systems in our societies um, are run on codes. You know, the water supply, um, the logistic resupply of supermarkets, air traffic control. Absolutely everything is, digi is, is digital now and, and controlled by codes. If you've got a computer that can crack any code in seconds, it means that nothing is safe. And it seems to me that the absolutely obvious thing to do would be to bring down the grid. Imag imagine if somebody like Putin or Kim Jong-un or some mad American billionaire got hold of one of these things. I mean, I've heard that the British military the British Ministry of Defense has just um, taken delivery of its first one. It's very sinister. Uh, it, we're, we're really not safe. If, and if, if the grid does suddenly go, it puts us back into the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages overnight. And my hero, um, Artie, uh, he's, he's called Artie, but his friends call him Q for quantum cryptographer. He, um, he thinks, well, if I know how to do this, somebody else does. Many, many, many... Other people might know how to do it. So he, what he does as a precaution is buy a ruined farmhouse on Bodmin Moor. Now, I wouldn't expect you to know the geography of England very well, but um, Cornwall is, in, is, is, is that long, thin west bit, you know, and uh, uh, underneath Wales. And it's got, it's got several more, it's got some very wild like, country on it. And Bodmin Moor is one of the wildest places. It's, it's magical. It, it's, uh, you know, Lots of evidence of the Stone Age. There are standing stones. There are capped-off mines. There are quarries flooded with water. Um, people tend not to stop there. Oh, and it's connected. It's connected with the, with the legends of King Arthur. Like Sir Tristram is supposed to be buried there, and there's a stone with his name on it. Um, Dosmary Pool is where King Arthur's sword Excalibur was thrown back into the water by Sir Bedivere, and it was caught by the arm clothed in samite. Yeah, right. And so. Um, and it's the sort of place where people don't really stop. So is it Avalon? Is that what the place is called? No, a Avalon is where he sailed to. Oh, okay. uh, How you get to there from, uh, from a lake, I'm not sure. Um, but the lake is supposedly bottomless as well. The, the, the legend is it has no bottom. But I sent a friend of mine in and she got up to here. Um, you didn't think so. of going yourself? Well, she's a wild swimmer and I, I like watching wild swimmers. Um, <laughs> No, so, so uh, yeah, so I, d I decided to set it on Bodmin Moor because it's a long way from any central population. It's a very deserted part of the country. And if, if you think about it, if the grid does go down, and the first thing that will happen in the towns is that people will loot, they will loot the houses and shops, won't they? When all that's gone, they'll have to move out into the countryside. And I've called these people the Horde. They'll be coming out absolutely desperately hungry and looking for food and shelter, probably eating, eating grass if they have to. Um, so um, he, he, my character, Q or Artie, wants to be as far away from the horde as possible when it emerges from the towns. Um, shall I carry on? I'm, well, I'm, I'm I can just do a monologue all evening. <laughs> if you know. You're known for doing scrupulous research. Oh, yeah. How do you research a doomsday scenario? Well, this was quite easy because um, I did my degree in philosophy um, years ago, and, and it included doing the philosophy of science. So I got interested in space and time. Now, if you're interested in space and time, you have to be interested in quantum mechanics. So I got interested in that. There are all sorts of weird and wonderful things that happen down there in that tiny uh, subatomic world, um, which, which challenge, our, which challenge our, our sense of reality, really. Um, for example, this idea that something could be two things at once. Um, if you fire a photon at a single slit, 
you know, an atom of light, in other words. You fire it at a single slit, it will go through as a particle. If you fire it towards two slits, it will set up a wave pattern, so it's gone through as a wave. It means that quanta, subatomic, you know, quanta, can be both waves and particles, or particles, depending on how you do the experiment and observe the experiment. It's a world where an awful lot depends on the observer. So, for example, every time somebody proposes that there must be another type of uh, subatomic particle, it's found almost instantly. And the suspicion is arising that, it, that these things don't exist and people, until people think they do. You know what I mean? It's a very strange world down there. Um, it, it, in, in a way, I find it quite comforting to think that this world may not actually be real. But, um, but um, yeah, so I've, I, for, the actual, for the actual book, I, I, I found a book about quantum computing. And I don't, I confess, I don't understand hardly any of it. Um, I particularly don't understand the maths. You present me with an equation with all those n's and x's and strange symbols. I have no idea what they mean. But I do know what the consequences are of all of this technology. So, and that's the important thing. So it's I, human I, I, cost. It's humanizing it. Yeah, yeah. And I, well, I know, I know what the human cost of it, of it, of, of it, of it all could be. Yeah. But humankind has had doomsday predictions and scenarios and cults for centuries, and they've all been proven wrong. Well, I, I certainly hope that this is wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to be. I do, I do live in Norfolk, and I have a firearm certificate. I can live off deer for a long time, but I don't want to have to, you know. Uh, s some people are actually delighted by the prospect of catastrophe, and I call them catastrophiliacs, and you get apocalyptomaniacs. You know, some people are delighted by it all. But if you think about it, we have had quite a number of devastating um, things in the past. The Justinian Plague, for example, wiped out 40% of Constantinople. When was that? Um, Oh, during the reign of the Emperor Justinian. I suppose it was about <laughs> 600 AD, I suppose, I don't know. There was, a, there was a great famine in Europe in about 1300. The Black Death wipes out an incalculable number of people. Um, and, of course, but we've also got a sort of millennial, uh, millennialism, haven't we? So, so we got, uh, Christians expected Jesus Christ to return at, uh, on uh, 1000 AD, didn't they? So they, they got themselves ready for the return of Christ. There is, in fact, somebody in this book who's getting ready for the return of Christ because everybody, or a lot of people in the book, are expecting the end of the world in their own way. So Maranatha is expecting Jesus to come and take him from the top of the tour. There's a, there's a, there's a Roman knight, who's Sibiria, who is waiting for King Arthur to reappear on the lake. You know, there's a woman waiting for the hidden imam, who actually is supposed to be coming from a well in Persia. But so you, 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 get, you get this millennialism uh, as, as well as, um, I suppose, uh, quite common knowledge of the terrible things that really did happen. And I, I remember distinctly in the 1960s, the climate scientists were telling us that there was going to be a new ice age. And some of you may be old enough to remember that. Then, of course, we had the terrible fear about, um, about AIDS. In about, in about 1980, there was a sudden panic about herpes, which never killed anyone, really. Uh, well, it has a few. Um, and of course, I, being my generation, I think this probably wasn't nearly as bad for the Irish, but for, for the British, being a nuclear power, we, we, I grew up with an absolute conviction that one day we would be annihilated in a nuclear war. And when, when the Berlin Wall came down, I watched it on the television with just tears pouring down my face because it was, it was as though the worst of our fears was just gone. And of course, now we've got Putin strutting around, threatening it all again. Mm, and yeah. unrest in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. The novel is set in the near future, maybe 20 years into the future. Yeah. And uh, speculative fiction or dystopian fiction isn't really something you've dipped your toe in the water of until now. Well, there was a crusade of religious fanatics in my third novel. Oh, OK. Um, Note to self, memorize. <laughs> well, you can't have read everything I've written. I, <laughs> I could. can't expect that even yeah. of my mother. Um, I mean, but it's... My daughter won't read my books because she says there's too many words, Daddy. Too many words? Too many words, yeah. More pictures, please. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a new genre for you, is it not? Um, it's, it's, it sort of is and also sort of isn't. But the very first thing I wrote was actually science fiction. What was that? It was called... Um, 
Aristarchus, Leontief, etc. And the reason you never heard of it was that we never got around to publishing it. But it was, it was what persuaded my agent to take me on. And it was about somebody who had, who had worked out how to time travel and all the very, very strange consequences that would ensue from that. Uh, I've, one of these days, I'm going to have to rewrite it and um, put it out. So something else in the book, it's full of bots. I mean, and they do every possible job that humans yeah. need doing, labor-saving devices. And you seem to be saying it's made people lazy. Um, and they, you know, they're good for nothings because these bots do everything. But then there's something more sinister than that. It's the idea that what if the cloud, if you like, develops plans and intentions of its own, if it becomes sentient, and what would the repercussions be? That is something that Q um, speculates about at one point in the book but I, I didn't actually address that issue at all myself. It's something you drop in for the yeah, reader to worry in. about. Because he, he has lots of worries about what could happen, what could go wrong. I mean, it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, a brilliant genius to, 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 to break the grid and the internet. All you need is something called a, a Carrington event, which happens every 100 years or so, which is a huge magnetic um, uh, sort of eruption from the sun. Are we due one? The last, yeah, we are. The last, one was, the last one happened in the middle of the 19th century when it didn't really matter much because we didn't have many electronic devices. So how many years to the next one? Oh, nobody knows. It's unpredictable. You said it's every century, though. So. Roughly. Yeah, OK. Yeah. So... I sort of don't want to worry you, but there are plenty of other things <laughs> to worry about. I mean, think, okay, okay, you could also worry about an asteroid strike. If the asteroids, if an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs, they could, it could do the same to us. You know, there are, there are many things to worry about other than some genius with a computer. But there are many things to be hopeful about. Exactly. And I mean, in many ways, it's a romantic book. I mean, yeah. there's... You, you, there's a lovely passage where you talk. Well, actually, I have it here. Let me let me look for it. Um, there's there's a you know there's a love story at, at the heart of it, and there's a lovely passage where you talk about Q tells his girlfriend, "I think the trick is to see heaven in somebody's face, as I do when I look at you, or to see it in the dew on the grass at six o'clock on a summer's evening, or in a raindrop." hanging from the corner of the gutter and so on. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's like putting... That's all... Oh, were you intending to read no, that no, bit? No, no, yeah. this one I like to do. I mean, that's putting all the apocalypse to one side. Yes, and and he, he comes up with that because Eva, his girlfriend, is, is, what, is thinking, well, what is the point anyway? Well, what's the point of living? What, what would even be the point of surviving? You know, what's it all for? It's a chapter called Soteriology. You know, Soteriology is the science of salvation. She must, what's our salvation? And he comes up with that. It's just the love we have for each other. And do and, you um, believe that yourself? I certainly do believe that. And I've believed it extra, extra, extra hard ever since I had children. Because having children sort of removed from my life that horrible, crushing necessity for being selfish. You know, there's, enough, there's nothing more depressing than only having yourself to think about. And I, I found it actually liberating having children. It completely changed the way that I thought about everything. And I remember a friend of mine called Tim Pears. He, he's a British writer. He's just written a West Country trilogy. He, he once said to me, you know, Louis, until you've had kids, you don't know what love is. And I, I sort of, um, in my case, I'm sure that can't be true for everyone, but in my case, I think it was true. And th this, this book is, actually, it's not really about science fiction. It's not about the end of the world. It's about the different kinds of love, which is what I always do write about. So there's the love between a spouse and an ex-spouse. There's the love between siblings, the love between humans and animals, um, the love between friends. There are all these different love kinds of, of love. There's a yes, lot of, of love of course, of the, the environment. Love of, the love of nature as well, yes. So the, all the, 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 these are the loves which, make, which give our lives meaning. Yeah. So yeah. that's what the book's about, really. Let's hear a passage from it. Well, shall I, shall I read the first two pages just to set it up? Um, well, when I used to teach creative writing classes, um, there was this formula which you could tell your pupils called the hero's journey. And uh, the first thing that happens is that a messenger arrives to, to some innocent living their ordinary life. And then um, the per with, a, with a mission, 
And the person, the ordinary person, doesn't want the mission. They resist. And then they had to give in. They go, then they go through a series of crises, you know, difficulties. With. This, in fact, if you think about it, is exactly how Lord of the Rings works. The hero's journey. It's, it's a marvelous, a marvelous way of setting up a story. Well, having taught it for years, I thought, why don't I try it myself? So, a messenger arrived. And this is, a, this is a poet. He's a poet who speaks in iambic pentameters, um, which I hope you're impressed by. <laughs> but I won't, I won't get round to reading. I'll just, I'll just go... Um... Right, here we are. A messenger arrives. I opened the door, and there the poet stood. He was a dark man, clad in a midnight blue cloak with gold braid around the cuffs a black fedora on his head. He wore a wide leather belt with a scrip hanging from it on the left-hand side, and in his right hand he carried a silver-tipped ebony walking stick. He was tall and gaunt, his face almost completely concealed beneath the shadow of his hat. He wore a thin, carefully trimmed moustache that extended beyond the compass of his lips. He stood, his cane before him, with the long, thin fingers of both hands resting on the top. His pose reminded me of a sentry. I caught the intense glitter of his eyes. Judging from the tenor of his voice and the shade of his skin, I assumed that he was of mixed stock, as almost everyone is these days. Even so, I was reminded of a line from an old French song which mentions l'élégance d'être noir. I stood speechless. It was quite common to see people walking about the streets dressed as wizards, prophets and magicians. Vikings or aliens. In those days, no one had to engage with anything practical. No one had to go to work, and so everybody dressed according to their fantasy. I confessed that I used to dress in a toga, like a Roman senator, and I have no idea why. We had become a race almost entirely got up in fancy dress. Most of us were glued to our screens, often three or four at once, or inhabiting the metaverses conjured up with our 3D helmets, or fueled by ingenious aphrodisiacs seeking ever more sensation from our sex bots. It was commonplace to see helmeted young men dressed as musketeers having sword fights in the parks with invisible opponents, and helmeted young women dancing tangos with virtual partners more dashing and glamorous than a real one ever could have been. We were living longer and longer, more and more of our body parts mechanized, with less and less to do. Advances in biohacking had made it possible for people to transform themselves continuously in thousands of ways. A friend who had decided to become a Klingon might turn up a decade later as a Vulcan. Some people identified as animals and had their heads rearranged to resemble cats, dogs or bears. We were a civilization of ever-diminishing returns. I look back on it and think of it variously as the age of unreality, the age of apathy, the age of pointless novelty, inescapable idleness, the disappearance of homo habilis, the ascendancy of homo redundans. Learned papers were being written about a worldwide plague of anhedonia, described as the inability to derive pleasure from pleasure. The most common causes of death were accidental suicide, death by inattention, death by misadventure, people in headphones and helmets, my children call them gargoyles, stepping out in front of driverless cars. Despite our longevity, the human population was nonetheless steadily shrinking. Somehow we had lost the will to breed. Children were such a commitment. It was such hard work. There was such a distraction, such an inconvenience. It was tedious having to deal with IRBOTs that constantly needed adjusting and reprogramming. It was rare in those last days to find someone with a domestic dog that was not a mechanized simulacrum. Some people thought that evolution itself had given up on the human race. There was a persistent rumor that human children, even the ones created in laboratories, were being born without genitals. <laughs> Does the notion of all these bots 
<coughs> and artificial intelligence run amok worry you? Artificial intelligence worries me less than other people because, according to the new scientist, um, if you use AI to design more AI, the quality rapidly diminishes. Oh. But that's, you had to believe the you had to believe the um, um, new the, the new scientist for that. Um, I'm I'm thoroughly in favour of of say bots that would look you know um, say perform complicated surgical operations which take hours you know, that sort of thing. Totally in favour of it. I'm not really in favour of having a, a a bot that looks after children. Do you see the difference? Sure. Uh, you, you don't want you don't want to dehumanise your world so that we stop doing things for each other. That, that's my point. And how do you feel about bots that mow the grass or do the vacuuming, household chores? Oh, well, well, yes, my cousin has one of those one of those mowers that mows the lawn on its own. But you know, it always gets stuck somewhere and the charge runs out. It's it's, <laughs> it's supposed to find its own way back to the charging point and it doesn't. It sort of gets lost and turns turtle. I, d I dare say these things will improve. Those sorts of things are quite good fun. Auto but, but automatic but cars are very close to being self-drive cars. Yeah. No? Yeah. I, I, I personally wouldn't want a self-drive car. I, I, I'd be constantly fretting that I should be at the wheel and doing something myself. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we should de-skill ourselves. And are we in danger of that? Very much so, yes. Yes, yes we, we do de-skill ourselves. Um, well, a very obvious example is that when we all got sat nas, we, we stopped learning how to read roadmaps. Mm. <laughs> that must have happened to most of you. It certainly happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Just a slight shift now. You, you, I've noticed you have music in many of your novels. You have it yeah. in this one, Light of Verlis Card. And of course, you have it famously in Captain Crowley's Mandolin, as we've heard. And you yourself play lots of musical instruments. Yeah. Would you have been a musician in a different life? Well, I have been a musician in this life. I, I was. I was full on, time. I was on the road full for, time. for about at least okay. ten years. Really? I, no, for full time. I mean, because you did it while writing. Well, let's books. face it. If you're a full time traveling musician, you spend more on petrol than you earn at the gigs. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a sort of gentleman musician. I, 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 I get paid, but not enough to live on. You know. Um, but you know that that part of my life is gradually coming to an end because I'm I'm getting Jupitron's contracture in this hand. You see this finger, and I've got focal dystonia in this hand, so my fingers don't work properly anymore. But um, and is it the music that's caused it, or is it a genetic? No, the Jupitron's thing is from is because of being descended from Vikings. <laughs> they used to call it Viking's claw. The focal dystonia is caused by overpracticing. You know, playing actually playing too much. It's, it's where your brain gets confused and sends the signals to the wrong places. So you're saying you don't play music so much? No, I do. I do, I do gigs of my own poetry and songs, but I, I don't try and do complicated instrumentals anymore in public, or hardly ever, but simply because it, I can't. It goes wrong. But I can, I can... With songs, what matters really is the lyrics. So, so I, I, do, I do songs... I've written about 100 songs, I think. And, um, and I do poetry because that's poetry, I think, is probably my greatest love. I would rather have been a poet than anything else. You have published poetry. Yeah, I've had three collections out, and there's another one due probably in a year or so. Yeah. And what can you say in your poems that you don't do to the same extent in a novel? Um. Does it reduce I, time? I don't find it all that different, actually, because everything I know about poetry I can use in prose. And when, when I want my prose to be particularly moving or powerful, I, 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 I write it really as poetry, but just don't tell anyone. Um, so the only thing you can't do in prose, really, is use overt rhyme. But you can use all the other poetic tricks, like meter or and rhetorical figures you can use. Um, you, you, you can set up a rhythm of a rhythm of the prose, you know, trochees or iambics or whatever. Mm. So they're, they're not as far apart as, as one might think. Uh, but a poem, a poem has to, obviously, it's, it's, it's condensed. And I think the last at the end at the end of a good poem, the audience has to sigh. You know, if the audience sighs at the end of a good poem, you know it's a good one. So we could put that to the test, couldn't we? Will we? Oh, it could do. Have you got um, a poem? 
Or do you know one off yeah, the heart? Yeah, there's one, there's one I quite like to read. I've, I've had several poems come to me from time to time when I've been in Ireland. And I, I thought it would be nice to do one of those. It's called The Only Road There Was. And I was uh, freshly separated from the mother of my children. And I, wanted to, I was doing um, the literature festival in Galway, and I wanted to bring my son. Kurt, was it? What? Kurt? I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I wanted to bring my children, and, and I was only allowed to bring my son. And uh, so this, this, is, this is about me, really, me and my son, my son and I, sort of, you know, having a hard time. But in Galway and Aaron. And how it's old called, was he? I think he was only four. Okay. He's 18 now. I just dropped him at university. I wept. <laughs> and he was very embarrassed. Okay, this is called The Only Road There Was. It was you and me. Your mother had left and wouldn't allow us to take the girl. As if you can own a child. As if it were nothing to be a father, be a brother, loving a daughter, loving a sister. And you were four years old, perplexed, confused, an innocent boy on the boat from Doolin Pier. It was you and me. Struck down by disaster, the passage made you sick. Out on the island, we hired a trap. There was only one road to right or left. The pony was expert, the driver redundant. We rattled off up the only road there was. We stopped on a hilltop, wandered away in fields squared out by sag-bulged dry stone walls. The wind soughed. The grass whispered, the sea sparkled, the boats in the distance as small as toys, the Atlantic sun benign on a couch of cloud. Amongst the burrows and stones, you found hundreds of shells of beautiful snails, gold and yellow or striped in white and brown. You gathered them up, this fabulous treasure, and crammed them deep in our pockets. While back on the lane, the man with the pony waited, to take us back down to the sea on the only road there was. You ate fish fingers, I ate lobster. You drank orange, I drank wine. Father and son, side by side, in the only place to eat. Then down on the beach you gathered shells, threw stones in the sea till the tide changed and the rose of Aaron returned. I was sorting through your outgrown clothes and found your shells in a tiny coat and it all came back. Buying a cladder in Galway town fashioned in silver to leave to you in my will. Buying a fiddle you knew how to play the moment it came from the box. Chasing the seagulls, eating sarnies in cafes, riding for miles in Connemara down on the beaches, you on the cob, me on the hunter. And every night I'd carry you up and put you to bed without your sister beside you. I'd sit at the foot and tell you stories of how you went up in the clouds and went to the moon with Sophie and looked at the cats because that's where they go when they die. I have some snaps the driver took of you and me collecting shells on Inishmore, a few miles up, the only road there was. Thank you. I think I heard a sigh at I the end. I heard a small sigh. Did you hear? Very little. Was it? It wasn't a proper Irish sigh. Oh, mm. there's a better mm. sigh. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, just when we were talking about the music in your novels, of course, Captain Corelli's mandolin comes to mind. In many ways, it's your defining work. Do you feel grateful to it or burdened by it? People expect me to say it's an albatross. Um, that it was in a very small sense, in that, um, well, actually quite a big sense, that up, to, up, to, up until Captain Corelli, I, I've been writing to amuse myself and my little sister. You know, my little sister was my reader. I'd had good reviews, 
I was earning enough money to leave teaching, which was my ambition. And, but, but when Captain Corelli got so successful, I suddenly felt I had the whole world looking over my shoulder, and it became very, very much harder to work at all or to write. I thought everybody wanted me to write the same book again, but different. Um, the other thing that happened was that there were too many distractions. You know, well, for the first time in my life, I was attractive to women. So, so, Why so, was that, Louis? Because I was suddenly successful. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, um, I kept being invited to festivals all over the world. I've travelled all over the world at other people's expense, which is fantastic, but it's not good for your work, you know, not good for your output. Um, and there was, a, there was a danger of me being dragged onto television to be a pundit or some kind of celebrity, which I, I desperately didn't want. I even had a stalker at one point. Quite an innocent stalker. Um, she turned up with a small dog and a huge box of presents. What kind of presents? Oh, lots of weird things, but there was always at least one bottle of wine. So it was a nice, it was all right as a stalker, as stalkers go. But um, Maybe she was a would-be girlfriend rather than a stalker. Was she courting you? Is that what was happening? No, she got obsessed with me. That's a bit different. Okay. And, 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 anyway, I suppose love is an obsession, isn't it, after all? Um, I, I, don't, I don't blame her or anything, but you know, in, in the end, I, felt I, I, I just had to move out into the countryside, and I... Um, so I, I left for, for, for Norfolk, which is, um, it's in that big bulge on the eastern side facing Holland. It's just like Holland, really. It's flat, and uh, all the architecture is Dutch. And it was drained by the Dutch engineers um, uh, in the time of William of Orange. But, uh, so I moved to Norfolk, and then I, I actually managed to get working again. I wrote Birds Without Wings, which I think is easily my best book. It's my favourite. It's easily my best, yeah. Yes. Tell people what it's about. Oh, Lord. Well, when, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed at the end of the First World War, the British, the French, the Italians, and the Americans decided that, that there had to be some sort of way of dividing up the old Ottoman Empire. And between us, we created the fiasco that we have now. But one of the things that happened was that the Greeks were allowed to occupy the western, some of the western coast of Anatolia, you know, Izmir, Smyrna, and the, the Greeks had this terrible nostalgia. It was called megalo idea, the big idea. They had this nostalgia for the time of Alexander the Great, when, when all of that region was Hellenized. It's like Putin's nostalgia for the Russian Empire. It's no different. It's just as ridiculous. And, but they, without even asking the rest of the Allies, the Greeks invaded, um, invaded uh, Anatolia and got as, uh, got as far as Ankara before Kamal Ataturk and his, um, his nationalist army drove the Greeks back and eventually drove them into the sea. And at that point, it was decided to separate the populations. So the Christians were sent to Greece, even if they didn't speak Greek. Most of them were Turkish speakers. And the Muslims in Greece were sent to Turkey, even if they didn't speak Turkish. They were Greek speakers. And it was... Nowadays, it's look, the Greeks look back on it and call it the demographic, no, the Asia Minor catastrophe. The Turks look back on it and call it the demographic catastrophe. Um, and what it meant was that for those people who had gone into exile, the place they had left became the lost paradise. So in Greece, Greece is full of, of people whose lost paradise is actually in Turkey, and Turkey is full of people whose lost paradise is in Greece, places like Thraki or Crete. Um, so, so my, my, my book was uh, Birds Without Wings was set against that background um, and it, I was trying to do a Thomas Hardy if you know what I mean I was writing about just ordinary people trying to live ordinary lives faced with absolutely appalling difficulties um, I think that's mostly what I do write about mm. uh, Captain Corelli is the same it's just ordinary people facing awful, awful um, problems and Corelli of course was made into a film did you visit the set? I was on the set for two weeks, but it was relentlessly boring. They, they, they filmed the same scene over and over again, and I simply couldn't tell the difference. In, and uh, in, in the end, I just went and did tourism while they were filming, and then I, I, I joined in with the partying in the evening. So the, the Italian actors were all acting to stereotypes. So, you know, football, flirting, drunkenness, feasting. So I joined in with all of that. 
and uh, that was terrific fun. Um, they only asked my advice once on, on, on one thing, and, and, and then they ignored my advice. So I, I didn't. Uh, they did ask me to write the script, but I didn't want to because I was working on Birds Without Wings. I didn't want to go back. So they gave the script to somebody who I think did a fairly mediocre job, and she hated me as well. <laughs> she, she, she said to my friend, Esther Freud, she, she, she said that Louis is um, ignorant and opinionated. And Esther replied, well, he's not ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But the, be the best thing about the film, actually, was, was that Penelope Cruz kissed me on the cheek. She's absolutely adorable. And what about Nicolas Cage? Well, Nicolas Cage was going through a terrible time because his marriage was breaking up and they were squabbling over the children. So he, he had to fly back to California every week for a day or two to make sure that he put in the legally required amount of time. So he, he, wasn't, he wasn't feeling friendly. Mm -hmm. he, he was hiding in a blacked-out caravan. From you? From everybody. From everybody. Mm. His, life, his life was too much of a torment at the time. And of course, the one. But he did. He did learn to play the mandolin. Oh, was that, that him? That is, he really did learn to play it. Yeah, he did a good job. Yeah. And then when the film was over, he forgot. <laughs> and of course, the wonderful John Hurt, um, who spent so much time in Ireland, is in the film as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, John. Um, I, I had fun with John. Um, John. John and his partner at the time. We were sort of. We did some drinking in his caravan. For a few months afterwards, John would ring me up when he was drunk and ask me what we could do about the terrible state of the world. Well, that's a conversation you could have kind of perpetually, <laughs> couldn't yeah. you? Yeah. Does, the, um, does the island, um, is it Kefalonia, does it capitalise on the Captain Corelli link? Yes, it does. You, you can go on little tours to find out where I got all my ideas. I'm We're longing to go on it myself. <laughs> um, and... It, it did a lot for the island, um, for the island's economy, a tremendous amount. Um, before you start getting annoyed about tourists, the fact is, it wasn't for the tourists on places like Catalonia, there would be no, there wouldn't be a proper infrastructure at all, and the locals wouldn't have proper electricity or anything, you know. So uh, the head of the Ionian Hotels Association rang me up once, he left a message on my answer phone. It was called Spiros Galiatsatos, and he said, it was a, hey, Mr. Louis, 25%. Thank you, thank you. 25% <laughs> of what? Well, I'd increased his profits 25%. Oh, okay. <laughs> Your work is done. He actually gave me a banquet when I went back there. Louis from Mayor. Louis from? Mayor of Catalonia, no? Oh, actually, the, the, the island is very left-wing and I'm not. They, they, they won't put up any statues to me. They'll just take the money. Now, speaking of not being left-wing, talk to us about Brexit. Oh, do I have to? You do, really, yes. Because um, way back the last time I was in conversation with you, you mm. were uh, in favour of Brexit and taking back control, and I'm curious to see how you think it's gone in the intervening six years. I thought that it would take ten years, actually, for anyone to have a sensible opinion on the outcome. Mm -hmm. So there's four years to go. Having said that... That's called kicking it to touch. No, I, th I said that at the time, Martina, if you were listening. Memorise, <laughs> um, memorise. Um, but it's, it's been extremely badly handled by everybody, uh, really. And, and the, thing, the thing that we certainly didn't pay enough attention to, and I include myself as a guilty party, is what on earth you would do about Northern Ireland. That we, 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 we were all a bit Boris-like, I think. Think, oh, well, we'll deal with that when we come, when we come to it. Because when Ireland, we did come to it, we Ireland, didn't have an answer. Ireland kept saying, remember the border. And yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, the weird thing about Boris, he was so optimistic, he made everything sound possible. His idea of cakeism, where you can have your cake and eat it, you know, uh, it, it sort of convinced us for a while. But... Um, no, I'm, 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 not, I'm not pleased about the way it was handled at all. Um, but I, uh, what, for me, it was never about immigration, for example. A lot of people were saying that, oh, the, you know, the leavers are xenophobes, and they're xenophobes and racists. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. That was an attempt to stereotype us um, with a false accusation. Personally, I love having immigrants. The more, the merrier. Um, they're the only people who work. 
Um, as far as I can see. But um, was what I was going to go on to say. You were saying the oh, reason. Oh, oh yeah, the reason, the, the reason was, was simply that... I, let, me see, let me see. When, when I originally voted to go into the European Union... I was expecting us to have a sort of United States of Europe where we would have a European president to vote for and a proper European parliament with powers. And I waited and waited and waited and waited. And it just became transparently obvious that it was really a Franco-German carve-up. And we, we didn't... I started to... The other thing that, that I suppose would worry me as a Brit a lot more than it would worry the Irish, it, I, because... My, my family went through two world wars and suffered hideous losses for, for, for the, in the cause of autonomy of small nations. You know. And we, 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 saw, we saw decisions coming in from the outside, which, which we hadn't um, had a chance really to vote on. And it started to make us really uncomfortable. It made me very uncomfortable. I think, I think democracy is by far the most precious political system that one can be a part of. And it, it, it's so precious, you can't endanger it by, by passing you know, bits of it off to other people. So for me, it was, it was about sovereignty. It wasn't about immigration or racism or anything else. Mm -hmm. you know, and as I said to that interviewer the other day, what was his name? Um, Hillary. Hillary, Hillary, a really, really nice so man. So Hillary did a piece for the Irish and yeah, Hillary I, Adam White. I, I said to him, you know, it, if it's so obnoxious being to having to take rules from London, or if it was so obnoxious, why isn't it obnoxious to have to take them from Brussels? Because you are, are part of that parliament and commission, and you send representatives. Well, te technically, technically speaking, after the Act of Union, there were Irish members in the, um, in the, in the, in the parliament in Westminster. Well, uh, you know, Louis, I think we'll have to take this conversation outside, <laughs> really. And I don't know that there's time to explain everything. No, I mean, I, I personally think that the Act of Union was a hideous mistake. It's a terrible mistake to send all those Irish MPs to London. It's stupid, because obviously they lost touch with what needed doing here. I, well, I'm not well they're always going to be a tiny minority in the larger grouping is the problem. But look, anyway. I've chatted to you enough. Does anyone have any questions from the floor? There is a roving, there is mic. A roving mic, but also we might, <coughs> we might even just hear you. But Susan, Susan has the, the, has the mic. Hi, I'm listening to the dust that falls on Audible at the moment. Oh yeah. And I just wondered, the, it's based in the, uh, around the time of the First World War. Um, and then I, I came recently to the bit about the seance. Did you get much reaction about that? Um, no, uh, not really. Um, the thing is that so many lives were lost in the First World War that, that as soon as the war was over, there was a tremendous increase of interest in spiritualism because everybody was trying to get in touch with their dead boys. And the Society of Psychical Research was, 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 was doing quite serious scientific research into, into whether mediumship actually works or not, you know, or what, what could actually be deduced about the afterlife or whether or not people survived death or whether we could contact them if they did. There was a lot of research going on. And... Uh, um, the, the, the enthusiasm, I suppose, lasted something like 30, 30 years or so. And oddly enough, it didn't recur after the Second World War. I suppose because the casualties were so much less, fewer, um, certainly for the British. So I was, that, I was just trying to reflect the truth of the times. And I thought it'd be fun to have a medium who sort of did hate, did, hated being a medium, didn't she? Or was, was suspicious about her own abilities. Yeah, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't want a stereotypical medium who was an obvious fraud. Yeah. You know? uh, wasn't there I'd be interested to know why you asked the question, Susan. Very, just that it was uh, very unlike anything else that had happened in the story so far. Oh, I see, yeah. No, I, I, was, just, I was just aware that, that there had been a craze for it after the First World War. Uh, there's another question there. here. Yeah. Hiya. Um, I have a couple 
questions run around in my head, but I'm not going to ask the, the obvious ones. I'm going to ask a really, really whimsical question. Okay. As a kid, we spent hol holidays over in Devon. And so when you mentioned Bodmin Moor, the first thing that came back to me was a memory from my childhood about the beast of Bodmin Moor. Does he feature in the book? Because I've only just bought it there. And the other thing is, if you're aware of the myth, do you know what's your theory as to what the beast of Bodmin Moor is or was? Well, there, there have been stories of, of um, large wild cats um, all, all over, for, for centuries all over Britain. I th and I think the beast of Bodmin might have been one of them. Um, you know, it, but the, you could you. Who, who knows? And if you've ever read, read the Hound of the Baskervilles, that's another sort of you know uh, example of. Although that turned out to be a real dog, didn't it? With painted with phosphorus. But I, I have no idea what the truth of it is. But what I what I do what I am aware of is that these days there's an awful lot more interest in rewilding. So. In, in, in my book, a lot of the extinct um, wild creatures are being reintroduced. So, uh, for example, there's, you know, the auroch, the gigantic uh, cattle with enormous twirly horns, and there's a lynx in the story, who may also be a young woman and a ghost, um, because li lynxes are the obvious way to, to, to control deer, you know, and... In this, there are bear and wild boar and all sorts of creatures like that who are being brought back in. And even on Dartmoor, they've introduced wolves. And there's an anxiety at the end of the book that the wolves are escaping from Dartmoor. So there's no, there's no um, sort of mythical beast of Bodmin in my story at all, but a, a lot of sort of rewilded real ones. Yeah. Any other questions? Do, do you have stories of, of, of like, um, you know, f enormous feral cats in Ireland? You don't, no. It's just us. Okay. Hi, Louis. I just was wondering, um, there you were mentioning about the, uh, the screenplay. And if, you know, it's rare that obviously, well, it's not that fr frequent that writers end up writing the screenplays for their movies, but, and some are offered. But if, it, if you were to be offered again, you know, the, an option for a film, would you having had that experience, would you want to write the script or would you like to be more involved or what difference would you maybe look given? I did. I, I did actually accept to write the script for Birds Without Wings. And apart, apart from the money, it was a nightmare. Um, I remember Sebastian Folks once said to me, don't get involved with people in the film industry. They're all dim or bonkers. <laughs> and so I, I, I wrote, I wrote for this very poetic script for Birds Without Wings. I, I mean, I thought the language was quite beautiful. And they sent it off to somebody who's a polisher. <coughs> right. A polisher. A polisher is supposed to improve the script that you submitted, right? This polisher was Dutch, and his second English was his second language. I mean, it was completely insane. He came back with a script that was far, far worse than what, than what I'd submitted, and the people who had paid me to do it realized it was rubbish and sent it back to me again. <laughs> so, uh, actually, uh, I, I, I think uh, I'm not going to fall for that one again. Too busy writing poetry and too many poems to write. Yeah. Um, I think it's time for some more music. Ooh. And this time, I think, Louis, are you going to risk it? Yeah, I'm going to risk it. And we're going to invite <laughs> Sean back to play with Louis. <clears throat> and this is pretty unusual. Uh, in Ireland, you haven't really played. The last time I played Ireland was Listerwell in uh, 2009, I think. <coughs> yeah. Do we need to know what you're playing? Uh, I'll tell them. <laughs> and so this is. And the then, just while the guys are setting up. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'll do the, um, the Greek to you. Uh, after the music, that'll be the end of the event, and uh, Louis will sign any copies of his books outside that anyone wants signed. All right, well. I write songs which are mostly stories. <clears throat> so... called Foxes in the Park.
standing at the crossroads, map spread on the ground. I asked the way of a troubadour who was coming from the town. There is no point in telling you, he said as he turned around. There is no such thing as left or right, there is only up or down. And when I finally got to you, you saw my lack of trust. I asked directions to your heart, you drew them in the dust. You saw that I was nervous by the way I clenched my fist. And you made me close my eyelids, and you took me by the wrist. You led me to your chamber, it was cold and it was dark. Your flesh was like a prayer, and your bed was like an ark. And you said, don't mind that screaming, that's just the foxes in the park. And you moved your hand upon me, and it stung me like a spark. I woke up 12 hours later in a partly furnished room. There were title charts upon the walls with the phases of the moon. I looked for you everywhere, found you at your loom. And far across the rooftops, the silver bells were striking noon. You wove me tales of innocence, you told me I was blind. I treated you with cruelty, you told me I was kind. You filled my head with paradox and scrambled up my mind. And the more I tried to get ahead, the more I fell behind. remember you at this junction of the road it was you who took my burden and I who took your load you offered up your freedom and I my liberty now I got yours and you've got mine don't ask me if we're free But I recall you most of all beside me in the dark When your flesh was like a prayer and your bed was like an ark And you said don't mind that screaming, that's just the foxes in the park And you moved your hand upon me and it stung me like a spark Tell me, are you going to do one more? No, that's, that's the answer to that, yeah. I think. Yeah? Yeah. Sure. Well, I think we're going we're gonna to leave it there. So, yeah. <coughs> where words fail, music speaks, but words haven't failed us tonight either. Thanks to Louis de Bernier and Sean Whelan. And uh, I just want to tell you that uh, Sean has, has toured and recorded extensively worldwide with all sorts of musicians, uh, but he's here on our doorstep playing regularly in Walters, and he'll be there with, with his three-piece mazurka playing on Thursday, the 7th of December, tickets through Eventbrite. Thanks to Susan Lynch and DLR Lexicon for programming tonight's event and for Dunley Rathdown County Council for sponsoring it. Uh, Dubray are here with books for sale and Louis will be happy to sell them. 
Louis, you entertained us with ideas as well as music. Thank you. Thank you, Martina. Thank you. Thank you.